Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, Book 14, Chapter 11. Why did Tolstoy kill Petra? Well, Tolstoy didn't kill Petra, really. The French did. Did Petra's death catch you off guard, or did you see it coming? And how will Pierre react to the news of Petra's death? Well, I'm sure Pierre won't react very well to the news. But never mind that, how is uh, Countess Rostova going to react? I... Yeah... Not well. <laughs> she is going to be beside herself. She's been already beside him, herself with worry about Petra ever since he went off and joined the army. Uh, so, yeah, she's not going to be happy. FDLP1 says, The Rostovs had avoided personal tragedy through sheer luck. My impression is that Tolstoy wanted to show that there was an unnecessary price paid of Russian lives and livelihoods through the Napoleonic conflicts. Count Rostov, Nikolai Dolokhov, Pierre, Alexander each contributed to needless loss of lives through mismanagement and by upholding romantic ideals of honour. Petya was just one example of this effect. The chilling final description of Petya on his horse as he is shot, instead of holding on to the reins, he was cleaving the air with weird and wonderful movements of his arms and slithering sideways out of his saddle. Um, Acoustic Eel says, even though I read this two years ago, I forgot about this scene. It was a little sad, but I could sort of see it coming, what with Petcha's impulsiveness and desire to see battle. Petcha and Pierre's names both mean Peter, so in this chapter we have lost one to gain another. <laughs> in a way. Brett Peterson says, wow, I'm speechless, that was not expected. I mean, he was immature, but dang, that hurts. Poor Natasha already lost Andre to this bloody conflict, now her baby brother. So sad. Stephen Foxbat says, If I read it right, it could be claimed he was a hero. His naive, bold actions pressed the French into capitulation. The idea of him being animated by the movements of his horse is a vivid image. If the etymology of vivid is full of life, it's an oxymoron. Maybe that's the exact quality. Uh, Karakika says, I didn't... I definitely saw it coming. But I didn't expect it so soon or abruptly. Poor Petra, such a waste. Big waste. Um, yeah, wow. Poor Petra. Um, <laughs> I think... Um, this was posted before midnight and I read a spoiler in the preview text by mistake. The preview text, ah, in the preview of, like, the the Reddit post. Yeah, I did post it early because I went out last night. So I did it early. So apologies if that made it spoiler for you. I didn't anticipate that happening. Um... Yeah, definitely not trying to ever spoil any of the book, but I guess posting it a few hours early could um, could have that effect. So that's my bad, I guess. Really sorry about that. Um, the whole thing about him still moving after being shot in the head, being animated by the m- movements of the horse, I always pictured it like... Um, ner- like the nervous system, you know, some people kind of twitch and jerk around even if they've been shot in the head because his arms are like wobbling around in front of him. So, um, 
I imagine, and I think they said his legs and his arms were like kind of stiff and wobbling. So I imagine them kind of jerking around like his body's just kind of, you know, freaking out. But his head is, you know, had it. And um, awful, awful picture. Awful mental picture. Poor, poor Petra. Such a waste indeed. He was so anxious to get into battle and just in the first seconds of facing his enemy just boom lights out but hey we've rescued Pierre so that's cool let's read on and see how Pierre's going chapter 12 12 goes like this during the whole of their march from Moscow no fresh orders had been issued by the French authorities concerning the party of prisoners among whom was Pierre on the 22nd of October, that party was no longer with the same troops and baggage trains with which it had left Moscow. Half the wagons laden with hard tack that had travelled the first stages with them had been captured by Cossacks. The other half had gone on ahead. Not one of those dismounted cavalrymen who had marched in front of the prisoners was left. They had all disappeared. The artillery the prisoners had seen in front of them during the first days was now replaced by Marshal Gionos, enormous baggage train, convoyed, with Westphalians. Behind the prisoners came a cavalry baggage train. From Vyazma onwards, the French army, which had till then moved in three columns, went on as a single group. The symptoms of disorder that Pierre had noticed on their first halting place after leaving Moscow had now reached the utmost limit. The road along which they moved was bordered on both sides by dead horses, ragged men who had fallen behind from various regiments, continually changed about now joining the moving column, now again lagging behind it. Several times during the march, false alarms had been given, and the soldiers of the escort has, had raised their muskets, fired and run headlong, crushing one another, but had afterwards reassembled and abused each other for their causeless panic. These three groups travelled together. The cavalry stores, the convoy of prisoners, and Junot's baggage train and still constituted a separate and united whole, though each of the groups was rapidly melting away. Of the artillery baggage train, which had consisted of 120 wagons, not more than 60 now remained. The rest had been captured or left behind. Some of Junot's wagons also had been captured or abandoned. Three wagons had been raided and robbed by stragglers from Duval's corps. From the talk of the Germans, Pierre learned that a larger guard had been allotted to that baggage train than the, to the prisoners, and that one of their comrades, a German soldier, had been shot by the marshal's own order because a silver spoon belonging to the marshal had been found in his possession. The group of prisoners had melted away, most of all. Of the 330 men who had set out from Moscow, fewer than a 100 now remained. The prisoners were more, more burdensome to the escort than ev even the cavalry saddles or Junot's baggage. They understood that the saddles and Junot's spoon might be of some use, but that cold and hungry soldiers should have to stand and guard equally cold and hungry Russians who froze and lagged behind on the road, in which case the order was to shoot them. It was not merely incomprehensible, but revolting, and the escort, as if afraid, in the grievous condition they themselves were in, of giving away to the pity they felt for the prisoners and so rendering their own plight still worse, treated them with particular moroseness and severity. At Dorogobu's, 
while the soldiers of the convoy, after locking the prisoners in a stable, had gone off to pillage their own stores, several of the soldiers' prisoners tunnelled under the wall and ran away, but were recaptured by the French and shot. The arrangement adopted when they started that the officer prisoners should be kept separate from the rest had long since been abandoned. All who could walk went together, and after the third stage, Pierre had joined Karateyev and the grey-blue bandy-legged dog that had chosen Karateyev for its master. On the third day after leaving Moscow, Karateyev again fell ill with the fever he had suffered from in the hospital in Moscow, and as he grew gradually weaker, Pierre kept away from him. Pierre did not know why, but since Karateyev had begun to grow weaker, it had cost him an effort to go near him. When he did so and heard the subdued moaning with which Karateyev generally lay down at the halting places, and when he smelled the odour emanating from him, which was now stronger than before, Pierre moved farther away and did not think about him. While imprisoned in the shed, Pierre had learned, not with his intellect but with his whole being, by life itself, that man is created for happiness, that happiness is within him, in the satisfaction of simple human needs, and that all unhappiness arises, not from privation but from superfluity. And now, during these last three weeks of the march, he had learned still another new consolatory truth that nothing in this world is terrible. He had learned that, as there is no condition in which a man can be happy and entirely free, so there is no condition in which he need be unhappy and lack freedom. He learned that suffering and freedom have their limits, and that those limits are very near together, that the person in a bed of roses with one crumpled petal suffered as keenly as he now, sleeping on the bare damp earth, with one side growing chilled while the other was warming, and that when he had put on tight dancing shoes, he had suffered just as he did now when he walked with bare feet that were covered with sores, his footgear having long since fallen to pieces. He discovered that when he had married his wife of his own free will as it had seemed to him, he had been no more free than now when they locked him up at night in a stable. Of all that, he himself subsequently termed his sufferings, but which, at the time, he scarcely felt. The worst was the state of his bare, raw, and scab-covered feet. The horse flesh was appetizing and nourishing. The saltpeter flavor of the gunpowder they used instead of salt was even pleasant. There was no great cold. It was always warm walking in the daytime, and at night there were the campfires. The lice that devoured him warmed his body. The one thing that was, at first, hard to bear was his feet. After the second day's march, Pierre, having examined his feet by the campfire, thought it would be impossible to walk on them. But when everybody got up, he went along, limping, and when he had warmed up, walked without feeling the pain, though at night his feet were more terrible to look at than before. However, he did not look at them now, but thought of other things. Only now did Pierre realise the full strength of life in man and the saving power he has of transferring his attention from one thing to another, which is like the safety valve of a boiler that allows superfluous steam to blow off when the pressure exceeds a certain limit. He did not see and did not hear how they shot the prisoners who lagged behind, though more than a hundred prisoners perished in that way. He did not think of Karateyev who grew weaker every day and evidently would soon have to share that fate. Still less did Pierre think about himself. The harder his position became, and the more terrible the future, the more independent of that position in which he found himself were the joyful and comforting thoughts, memories and imag imaginings that came to him. 
Alright, there we go. Pierre is in the hell on earth, but managing some kind of mind over matter thing going on there and not thinking about anything that doesn't spark some kind of joy. Alright, that's a chapter for you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.